Hello, my fellow teachers and students of the scriptures. Welcome to Teaching with Power. So grateful that you've decided to join me this week. And my goal is to help you to either teach or study the scriptures with more relevancy and power. And I believe that power really does flow from the relevancy. That's one thing that I always seek to emphasize in my teaching. Above scholarship, above background, above textual analysis. And I encourage you to do the same. All those other things can help add context and understanding, but I believe that it's the relevancy that people most desire when it comes to an experience with the scriptures. They want to know how the scriptures can help them in their own circumstances, their own challenges, and in their own faith. So always look for opportunities to liken the scriptures and their power will flow into your lives and the lives of your students. And this week, Matthew chapters 11 through 12 and Luke chapter 11. So if you're ready, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. Now you're going to notice that this week in Come Follow Me, that it's not a story week this time. It's a teachings week. It's focused on some of the teachings of Jesus Christ. And it contains some that we've already covered together. Uh, Jesus's tribute to John the Baptist. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and my sister and my mother. The Lord's Prayer. Uh, and no man when he hath lighted a candle put it in a secret place, neither under a bushel but on a candlestick. Talked about all of those statements. But there are also some teachings here that we haven't taken a look at yet. And so you're going to notice that uh, they're all fairly short sections of Scripture. But we're going to take a look at each of these little gems. Uh, there's four of them that we're going to cover this week. Gems of truth within the teachings of Jesus Christ. So first, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. There is a lot of meaning packed into those three short verses. For an icebreaker, I like to talk about backpacking. Now, I'm an avid backpacker, and so I have a bunch of gear, and I'd probably bring in some of it to display as a bit of an object lesson. And I would bring in two backpacks. In one of the backpacks, I'd put in all of my heaviest and biggest gear, some of my older gear that I used to carry when I was younger. But then I'll load up the other backpack a little bit differently. Because about 10 years ago, I stumbled upon the world of what's called ultralight backpacking. And, and it changed everything. I used to carry a 50 to 60 pound backpack on my trips. Not anymore. Now my backpacks typically weigh less than half of what I used to carry. I realized that there were things that I was packing that I didn't really need and that I never used. I found lightweight alternatives to the basic gear. And I learned strategies and techniques that required me to bring and use less. And with that, I found that the experience of backpacking improved tremendously. It was so much easier, lighter. I could go further, see more. And, and it was definitely more enjoyable, less painful on the shoulders, if you know what I mean. I still had a burden to carry but it was light. And I still had everything that I needed to not only survive, but to thrive in the outdoors. And as I display those two backpacks, it's obvious that they're visibly different in size and weight. I might even invite one of my students to come forward 
and try on the two backpacks and ask them which of the two they'd prefer to carry on a, on a 50-mile backpacking trip. Choice is easy. Now, you may not have a bunch of backpacking gear to display as a teacher, but you could basically use the same idea as long as you had two backpacks of any kind. Uh, you could make one heavy and the other one light. And instead of heavy and light backpacking gear, you can talk about how heavy school backpacks used to be, with all the textbooks that we used to carry around, compared to the backpacks that most students carry nowadays, where so much is done digitally and with school laptops that heavy backpacks are a bit of a thing of the past. Well, Jesus had something to say about the kinds of burdens that we choose to place upon our backs in this life. We all have burdens to carry, spiritual ones. All mortals do. And the backpacks here represent different ways people choose to live their lives. Different approaches to life. Backpacks of mortality. And we are given a choice as to which we want to carry throughout it. Nobody goes through life without shouldering responsibilities, duties, expectations, and trials. Which of the two backpacks do you feel best represents the burden Christ's gospel places upon our backs? And which do you feel is the backpack that the world, or Babylon, places there? Which is the backpack of discipleship? Be honest here. Don't just pick the one that you think is the right answer. Which one do you feel represents discipleship? How do you see? If somebody were to ask you, What's it like being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? How would you honestly describe it? The responsibilities, the expectations, the duties that Christ's Church places upon us compared to the ones that the world places upon the shoulders of, of its disciples. Now turn to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, to see if you got it right. And there it says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, do you believe that? Because that's a very challenging set of verses in your soul. In your heart of hearts, do you believe that that's true? Sometimes I feel that the scriptures take us by the lapels and hold us up against the wall of our own thoughts and demand an answer. This is one of those passages. When someone asks you what it's like being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, would you use the words that Christ does in your answer? Would you say, it's easy, it's restful? The burdens the church places upon my shoulders are light. I'm not so sure that we'd all answer in that way. In fact, we may be tempted to feel the exact opposite. As we look at the way those that have chosen the backpack of the world live, we may start to think how much easier it must be not to have to worry about things like paying 10% of our income in tithing, attending frequent church meetings, serving in time-consuming callings without pay, being subject to high standards of conduct and commandments like honesty, modesty, patience, 
integrity, self-sacrifice. We could just jump into bed every night without feeling the need to pray or study scripture. If we could just live a life that caters to the natural man rather than subjugating it, ah, that must be such an easier way to approach life, right? But Jesus said that his backpack, that his burden is light and easy and restful, that the lighter backpack is his and the heavier the backpack of the world. Except he doesn't use the image of a backpack in Matthew because they didn't use them back then. What word in those verses is the biblical equivalent to backpack? It's yoke. Jesus talks about his yoke. What's a yoke? It's a farming tool, like the one in these pictures here. Before the days of tractors and giant farming machines, people would use animals to help them in their farm work. They would often yoke a pair of oxen together to pull large burdens behind them, like plows or rakes or wagons full of wheat and other goods. So Jesus is not suggesting that following him is like a life without work. What Jesus offers to those that labor and are heavy laden is not a pillow or a vacation or a lazy boy recliner. It's a yoke. He invites us to take upon ourselves a different way of carrying ourselves. I've seen a picture floating around the internet and, and even some posters with an interesting message on it. It's a picture of Jesus Christ with the words, I never said it would be easy. I only said it would be worth it. I'm afraid that that's just not true. Jesus did say it would be easy. Right here in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30. But why would he say that? We may be tempted to argue with that verse. No, Jesus, the path of discipleship is difficult. It's challenging. You yourself often speak of trials of faith, great sacrifices to be made, crosses to bear, persecution to endure, and perhaps even laying down our lives for the gospel's sake. How in the world can you describe the path of discipleship as easy. And I want to be clear about something before we proceed. I've often seen these verses used as a vehicle to teach the principle that Christ can help carry my burdens for me, that he can lighten my load through his love, grace, and his atonement. And I have no problem with that because that is a true principle. But I don't think that's the message here. I'd teach that principle in Mosiah chapter 24. Where, where the burdens that Alma's people are suffering under are made lighter because of their faith and prayers. But here, I believe that Jesus is inviting us to compare the way of life his gospel offers to the way of the world. So, the question stands, why would he say that? How is Jesus Christ's yoke easier, lighter, and more restful? And maybe I'd let my students wrestle with that one for a bit. My thoughts? The burdens of living as a disciple of Jesus Christ are lighter and easier when compared with the burdens that the alternative offers. It's light by comparison. Yes, his yoke requires obedience and sacrifice and service, but it removes the far heavier burdens of sin and ignorance 
and darkness. The weights of regret, addiction, and aimlessness are considerably more weighty than the exertion required to endure trials of faith or even persecution. It's like in school. The student that pays close attention to the teacher's lecture on how to solve the math problem and takes notes and exerts himself to really understand the concept behind the problem may be appearing to work much harder than the student who lazily memorizes the answer to get the teacher off his back and then leans back to play on his phone or daydream that copies all the answers to the homework off of a friend. That appears, at first, to be the easier path. But observe those same two students later in the semester, the night before the big test that they both must pass in order to graduate. The student who took the time to understand sleeps easy and restfully, confident in his ability to solve the problems. The other may stay up all night, spending hours trying to figure out how to do it on his own. Or he may despair and give up entirely, fail the test, and end up repeating the grade. That hardship, I feel, is far harder than the hardness that the first student experienced at the beginning, exerting the effort to learn. Or in a war, the country with the army that attacks the enemy head-on may suffer casualties and may make some huge sacrifices in order to preserve their freedom and their way of life. But that difficulty leads to a far better and easier future for the nation and for generations to come. And the country that surrenders and gives in at first notice may seem to have it easier than the one that fought. But their lives in bondage to the occupying force makes their lives much harder and downright miserable. It's much harder for that nation in the long run than the country that decided to resist. I believe that living as a disciple of Jesus Christ is kind of like that. And can you think of any examples of that principle when it comes to your discipleship? Examples of how being a member of Christ's church makes life easier and more restful than those who choose not to bear that yoke. Here are a few of my own examples. I imagine trying to cope with the tragic death of a loved one without my belief in a glorious resurrection through Jesus Christ. That burden would seem almost unbearable to me. Imagine trying to navigate your life without a knowledge of the plan of salvation, never understanding your purpose, your potential, your identity as a son or daughter of God. Life would be much harder. I believe that all throughout my youth I took that knowledge for granted because I'd been taught it since primary. But when I got out into the mission field and met people who had no idea where they came from, why they were here on earth, and what was going to happen to them when they died, and to see the lights come on in their eyes and the gratitude they felt to finally have answers to those questions made me so much more grateful that I had been given that gift. That knowledge makes life easier, lighter, and more restful. Imagine trying to face the burdens of life's problems without the help of your ward, your leaders, the community of Christ that surrounds you. And if we feel that living commandments and standards and the counsels of the prophets is hard, maybe we should try living the alternative for a while, going through life attempting to figure those things out on our own by trial and error. 
But by the time we figure out which choices are the good ones and the bad ones, it may be too late. Without those protective guardrails, we may not get it until we've fallen off the cliff and we're plummeting to the rocks below. So our, our truth that I'd like to highlight here, choosing to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ is easier, lighter, and more restful than anything the world has to offer. Of course, if you wanted to make the point that living as a disciple of Christ is easier because Christ is there to help shoulder our burdens, you could certainly do that here. The truth is perhaps implied by the image of the yoke, because a yoke was often used to pair the strength of two animals together to pull the load. So the yoke of Christ is easier because he helps to bear the burdens of our lives with us. But to me, the true power of these verses is in its implication of choosing the lighter backpack of discipleship to Christ. But there are a few things that we need to do in order to experience that rest, that lightness, that easiness. Look closely at the verses again. Do you see our three verb phrases? We've got to come unto him, take his yoke upon us, and learn of him. What does that look like? We've got to commit ourselves to Christ and his church, make covenants to follow his gospel, and then spend the rest of our lives learning of him and striving to live as he did. We've got to seek to tame and overcome our natural man and hand ourselves over to Christ completely. And so, to liken the scriptures, one simple question. What aspects of living as a disciple of Christ do you find restful, easy, and light? And in conclusion here, my, my fellow disciples of Christ out there, I want to express my gratitude for the backpack that Christ has given me to wear. The yoke the burden that he's provided for me. Though there is weight to it, though it requires effort and sacrifice and labor to carry, that weight is, as Paul puts it, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's a glorious weight. And when I go backpacking with my ultralight gear, I often almost don't even notice that it's there. The journey becomes my focus. The beauty of the world around me takes center stage. And, and not the weight that I'm carrying. I testify with full conviction that living as a disciple of Christ is restful. It's easy. The burdens that membership in Christ's church is placed upon our shoulders are light. And I hope that we would answer like that the next time we're asked what it's like to be a member of the church. He did say it would be easy and that it would be worth it. At that moment, as a teacher in my class, I'd pick up my ultralight backpack and say, now let's go enjoy the journey with the right backpack, the lighter backpack of Christ's yoke. And that by far is my favorite teaching from this week's assigned chapters. It's one of those all-encompassing type principles. There's some other great principles that you could also teach this week. For one, you could highlight Jesus's teachings about the Sabbath day. And as an icebreaker, I like to tell a little story about 
something that happened to me while I was visiting Jerusalem once. We were staying in a high-rise hotel in the city, and my room just happened to be uh, near one of the top floors. One morning, as I was going down to the lobby to get breakfast, I hit the button for the elevator, and as you would expect, the doors opened and I hopped on. Well, the elevator doors closed and descended exactly one floor, and then opened up again. And there was nobody there. Nobody got on. I thought that was strange. The doors closed and descended another floor, and then stopped and opened again. Once more, nobody there. I looked at the buttons inside the elevator. None of them were lit up at the bottom floor. So I was really, really confused. My frustration and perplexity only grew as that elevator stopped at every single floor on the way down. I even thought to myself, somebody's playing a trick on me here. They're running down the stairs and hitting the button on every floor before I get there. When I got to breakfast, I told my parents about the experience, and, and my dad, he said, Oh, I know what was happening. You got on the Shabbat Evader. The Shabbat of what? The Shabbat Evader. See, today is the Jewish Sabbath. And on that day, Orthodox Jews believe in strict standards of not working. Pushing the elevator button is considered work. And the Sabbath is a day of rest. So at least one of the elevators in buildings like this is always set to just go up and down, stopping at every floor all Sabbath long. Now, I don't tell you this story as a means of criticizing Orthodox Judaism or to make fun or demean that belief. It's just a modern-day example of the extent of Sabbath day laws within that faith. And this was the kind of thing that Jesus encountered in his day. In fact, if you wanted to see what things were specifically prohibited by Jewish law in Jesus' day on the Sabbath, you could just show them the following slide to give them an idea. There were 39 specific types of work that Jews were not to engage in during the Sabbath. And these are just the general categories. Each one of these had numerous clarifying laws as to how that principle should be applied. And I'm not going to read through all of these here, but, but just by scanning it, you kind of get the point. It's very restrictive. It's very detailed. And here's the point. I don't think that there's anything wrong with a person holding themselves to a higher standard of living or obedience because it helps them feel closer to God. I wouldn't use this as an example of saying, oh, look how silly these people are. I don't think that Jesus had a problem with people striving to live the rules of the oral or the rabbinic laws. The problem that he had with the Pharisees of his day was in their judgment and condemnation of others who didn't live up to their interpretation of the commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy. As Jacob in the Book of Mormon says, they were guilty of looking beyond the mark and condemning those who didn't look as they did. And they were becoming prideful in their obedience. So because of this, Jesus often challenged the Pharisees and the critical eye that they turned on everyone who didn't live up to their standard. The conversation between them and Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, is a really good example of this. 
and I would just read these verses together as a class and explain their meaning as a teacher. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hunger, and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was hunger, and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the shewbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you, that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. A couple of observations here. One, Jesus was really good at countering the Pharisees' objections. He knew his scriptures backwards and forwards and exactly how to apply them. So in defense of his disciples, he says, David did something that you would consider breaking the Sabbath day, and you still venerate him, because he was the king, and the circumstance demanded it. Priests do something that your law prohibits on the Sabbath day for the sake of temple work. And in both cases, Jesus is saying that these practices were acceptable because a higher authority superseded the demands of the law. And Jesus was a greater authority than any king and the temple. He was the king of kings, and the temple was his own house. And so it's almost like he's saying, I was the one who gave the law to keep the Sabbath day holy in the first place. Don't presume to tell me how to live it. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath day, and the final authority on the rules that govern it. In that case, he felt the Pharisees had taken it much too far. They had picked up a burden that the Lord never intended them to carry. And then they're taking it a step further and beating other people down with their standard. So how does, how does Jesus really feel about keeping the Sabbath day holy? And what does that really look like? To help my students understand this better, I divide them up into groups of four and assign each one to take one of the following statements to ponder. They should ask themselves, how could this statement guide me in keeping the Sabbath day holy? And for some of the more difficult phrases to interpret, I give them a short clarifying statement just to help out. And I'll make a template available for anyone that is interested in approaching this as a handout. But the four sections are Matthew 12, 7, but if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. Or in other words, people and their needs must take precedence over ritual and rules. Number two, Matthew twelve eight, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Or in other words, Jesus is the leader of the Sabbath and the final authority on what should be done on it. Matthew 12, 12, number three. Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. And then number four, Mark 2, 27. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man 
for the Sabbath. And after you've given your students sufficient time to ponder these phrases, encourage them to share their ponderings with the other three individuals in their group. And after that, you can invite some of them to share their findings with the entire class. And please allow me to share a few brief thoughts of my own on these statements. For our first statement, but if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What's the point that Jesus is making here? There's no doubt that rules and policies and standards are important. I believe that Jesus would agree with that. But sometimes, in our overzealousness to keep those rules and those rituals, we may begin to be blinded to the needs of the people that those standards are intended to bless. The purpose of commandments and standards and policies is to lead us to God, to bless us. But when those things begin to become an end unto themselves instead of a means to that greater end, when they become a rod with which to beat others down with, when the policy becomes more important than the person, then we've looked beyond the mark. And it may be good to ask ourselves if we've ever found ourselves falling into this trap of offering sacrifice, but neglecting mercy. As members of the church, I think we do this when we neglect or judge or ostracize those who we feel aren't keeping the rules as they should. Rather than extending a loving, non-judgmental, and inviting spirit to all. As teachers, I think we do this when we allow the lesson to become more important than the needs of the people that are listening to the lesson. As parents or leaders, I think we do this when we rebuke or chastise or correct without love or seeking to understand the person behind the problem. Like President Monson once encouraged us, never let a problem to be solved become more important than a person to be loved. Sabbath day standards is one area where we've got to be cautious not to do this. When our emphasis on Sunday changes from resting from our labors and worshiping God to showing others our righteousness or propping up our pride, then we've looked beyond the mark. So let's hold ourselves as to as high of a standard that we please on the Sabbath day. But let's also be careful not to judge or condemn those who perhaps don't see it in the way that we do. Statement number two, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. How does that statement help me? It helps me to remember the purpose of the Sabbath. It's to focus on Christ. He's the Lord of it. So in making decisions on how I should live that day, without giving you a bunch of shoulds and shouldn'ts, I could just give you that question. Does this thing focus me on Christ and the things of his gospel? Does attending church do this? Yes. So what a great activity to take part in on Sunday. Does enjoying a meal with extended family accomplish this? Yes. Family bonds are important to Christ. What a great thing to do on Sunday. Perhaps we could use that question as a guide in deciding how we'll spend our time on Sabbath. Statement number three, wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. 
And this was said in response to the Pharisees who get upset that Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Looking beyond the mark indeed. That's another good standard in determining what we decide to do on God's whole day. Because it is intended to be different than other days. If we treat the Sabbath just like any other day, then perhaps we're not making the mistake of looking beyond the mark, but we're still missing the mark. So we should do well on the Sabbath. And by doing well, I think he means service. Doing well for others. And that's why Jesus had no problem with healing people on the Sabbath. Taking away someone's pain and suffering is a good thing. Therefore, completely appropriate. I don't think Jesus is just saying that if something is good, that, that that's okay to do on his holy day of rest. There are plenty of things out there that are good that would still probably be better left to other days of the week. But doing well to others is always an appropriate act. So on the Sabbath, look for things that you could do to bless other people. And statement number four, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It's important for us to remember that the Sabbath is a gift to us from God. He created it to benefit us. He didn't set it up as a day that was to be selfishly just focused on him, but a day that would bless and lift us. How does it do that? By giving us rest. We all need a day of rest each week. It's healthy for our spirits and our bodies. And I think that rest can have a few different implications here. I think it's more than just a day of physical rest. It can be, and I, for one, enjoy taking a quick nap on Sundays. But I know that many callings carry heavy Sunday responsibilities. And that Sundays may be days when family gatherings cause us to be somewhat busy. And it may not always seem like a day of rest. But rest could be defined as rest from worldly labors and concerns. It's good for our souls to take at least one day in the week to get away from the labors and diversions and temporal concerns of everyday life and devote our time to more spiritual matters. It's a day of rest from the world. When I look at it in that way, it totally changes the nature of the so-called shouldn'ts of the Sabbath. We're not looking for a list of things that we can't do on Sunday, but things that we get to rest from for just one day. We get to rest from professional concerns, from shopping and errands and from temporal needs. And instead, we get to turn our focus towards God and recharge our spiritual batteries. We get to learn about the things that really matter most. Focus on Christ. Be unified with others who share the same beliefs and feelings as we do. Strengthen our families. The Sabbath is there for us. So for our truth here, I've just decided to list some things that, that I found and that we just talked about. But your students may interpret those verses a little differently, find different things. So go with the things that they discovered and testify of their truth. Perhaps you could list them on the board as you go. To like in the scriptures, what good things do you enjoy doing on the Sabbath? And how has the Sabbath day blessed you? I'm very grateful for the Sabbath day myself. There's so much wisdom in it. 
Sabbath was made for us and not us for it. I'm grateful for a Heavenly Father who understands the importance of a day of rest and spiritual renewal. I like how Isaiah put it in chapter 58, 13, that the Sabbath is meant to be a delight for us. I know that as I was growing up, my parents always did some things that helped to make the Sabbath a delight for us. They always had a positive attitude towards going to church or having the home teachers over or enjoying a family gospel lesson together. Sometimes we would play board games together or do puzzles. Then we always had the three D's in the evening. Dinner, Disney, and dessert. My mother would always make a big special meal, and then we'd sit down and watch a Disney movie together and eat ice cream. It helped to make the Sabbath a delight, and a day that we looked forward to. A day of family and faith. My wife and I have sought to implement those same things into our Sabbath day for our own children. The Sabbath was made for man. All right, our next little gem here. Uh, Matthew twelve forty-three through 45. For an icebreaker, I like to have my students look at the following pictures and ask, is the problem solved? As you see, in each of these photos... The people started with a problem, and to their credit, they did something about it. But did they solve it? That's the real question here. So this man, for example, had a problem. He had a flat tire. Flat tire's bad, and so he removed it. And that's good, right? Problem solved? Not really. He's got a different problem now, doesn't he? And what might happen now? Now, this person had so many cavities in their teeth that all of them needed to be removed. Problem solved? This person had a front door that wasn't turning well on its hinges, so they ripped it out. Problem solved? Well, now, what might be the problem? And then, there was a bad section of tracks in this area, so they ripped them out. Problem solved? What might be the problem now? And what might happen? And so in each of these cases, what did the people fail to do? They failed to replace what was bad with something good. They only solved half the problem. In fact, wouldn't you say that they've created a far more dangerous situation than they began with? I guess that just removing the problem isn't enough. In Matthew 12, 43-45, we have a similar situation. And I might approach this section of Scripture with the following personal study guide handout for my students. It encourages them to read those few verses and answer a couple of questions. And I'll walk you through it here. Question number one, what was the man's problem? Answer, he had an unclean spirit in him. Question number two, what good things did the man do to try and solve the problem? Now you read through it, and he kicks the unclean spirit out. He was able to cause it to go out of it. He swept the problem out and put things in order. That's what garnished means. He cleaned up his house, took out all of the trash, and got rid of all that was bad or out of order in it. Question number three. But what did he fail to do? Answer. He failed to put something good back in its place. 
The key phrase here is that the unclean spirit findeth it empty. That's what he failed to do. He left his house empty. So when the evil spirit returned, what was the result? It says, oh, wow, there's more room in here than there was before. I'm going to go get some of my friends and we're going to throw a party in. Question four, what was the final result of that decision? The scripture says that the last state of that man was worse than the first. Now he ended up with an even bigger problem. So question number five, these verses are teaching us an important principle about repentance. What do you think that might be? If I wish to repent, I must. And here's one way that you could complete that statement. If I wish to repent, then I must not only get rid of what is bad in my life, but replace it with something good. And let's consider some examples of this principle. Help one of these people out. Pick one and be ready to share your thoughts. Using the principle you've discovered in these verses, what advice would you give them? So here's the situations. A. Swearing Sam has a nasty habit of putting people down and using offensive and vulgar language. He wants to change this about himself. What advice would you give him? B. Mature Media Mike has realized that his choice of music, movies, and video games is having a negative effect on his spirituality and faith. He decides it's time to clean up his act. What advice would you give him? C. Internet Ian has developed a dependency on pornography when he gets stressed or discouraged in life. He knows this is wrong and wants to change. What advice would you give him? D. Selfish Sarah is feeling alone, empty, and unfulfilled in life. She feels that she spends all of her time and energy on herself and has neglected her friends and family. She wants to change. What advice would you give her? Or E. Make up one of your own examples of somebody that's trying to change something about themselves. Some of my thoughts on, on these kinds of situations. If you have a bad language problem and decide you need to remove that from your life, you can't just stop talking to people altogether. A better solution? Replace the bad language with good language. Make a goal to give someone a sincere compliment every day. Instead of using offensive words in your language, replace them with positive, humorous, or kind words. If you have a habit of listening to inappropriate music, watching filthy movies, or playing violent video games. Don't just stop by throwing those things out. Replace them with good and uplifting music, wholesome movies, and family-friendly video games. I mean, I, I know that most of what Hollywood and the media puts out there these days is, is absolute garbage, downright harmful to the soul. But thank heavens that we also live in a time where there are plenty of good options out there too. There are good movies to watch, good music to listen to. I have to look a little harder, but it is there. And if you're trying to get rid of a pornography problem, you've got to put a different interest in its place. You can't just remove the temptation and not replace it with something that is spiritually healthy to stimulate your mind with. Something else that draws you to it and gives you a feeling of excitement, a hobby or an interest that you find fulfilling and interesting. Or try finding and 
building up satisfying friendships and relationships with real people. If selfishness is the problem, replace it with service. Replace anger with love. Complaining with gratitude. Toxic and spiritually damaging friendships with positive, spiritually uplifting ones. If we have a desire to change, to repent, or to fix something that we don't like about our lives, then we've got to be careful about creating a vacuum that the adversary might seek to fill. I'm intrigued by what the Lord said to Cain after he failed to make a worthy and acceptable sacrifice to God. In Moses 5.23 he said, If thou doest well, thou shalt be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and Satan desireth to have thee. That was Cain's problem. His sense of apathy towards the things of God left an empty space in his heart that Satan quickly sought to fill. Let's not make the same mistake. We've got to fill our lives with doing well if we wish to be accepted. It's when we stop doing well that we create the void. And sin and Satan are constantly checking to see if the door of our souls will open. Jesus is comparing our souls to a room with a, a door that swings open to the inside. And sin and the unclean is there trying to, to push its way in. So we've got to fill up the room with so much good stuff that there's no space left over for the bad. Fill it with boxes and boxes of service and sacrifice and righteousness and hard work. No wonder the Lord told us in Doctrine and Covenants 58.27, Verily I say, men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause, and do many things of their own free will, and bring to pass much righteousness. So fill up that room to the brim with good causes. And when sin and Satan check to see if the door will open, all the pushing and shoving in the world isn't going to do them a bit of good. But like in the scriptures, the final questions on the handout uh, uh, is a personal application section. And it asks, what's a righteous replacement that you could make in your own life? What bad do you need to remove? And then, what is something good that you could put in its place? Invite your students to make a plan to do both parts of the problem-solving process. Encourage them to follow through with that plan. And I'd encourage you to remember that principle the next time that you feel inspired to change something about yourself. Don't go halfway. Go in for the full treatment. To truly fix the problem, we've got to remember that repentance without replacement is risky. Sin lieth at the door, ready to sneak in and bring seven other spirits more wicked than itself with it. Replace the space. Fill your life with good things. Be anxiously engaged in a good cause. Always. And I believe that if we do that, we'll find that it is much, much easier to keep the adversary away. One more principle, Luke 11, verses 5 through 8. And when we studied the Sermon on the Mount, we covered a whole section of principles that the Savior taught us about prayer. Well, here in Luke chapter 11, you're going to see many of those same teachings. But there's a specific principle of prayer that Luke includes that Matthew didn't, an additional powerful prayer principle. 
So for an icebreaker, I'd just like to tell a few of my favorite knock-knock jokes and ask if my students have any good ones that, that they could share. And I do understand, I know these are terrible, but I think you'll find that your students still enjoy them. So, knock-knock, who's there? Nobel. Nobel who? Nobel, that's why I knocked. Knock-knock, who's there? Hatch. Hatch who? Bless you. Knock-knock, who's there? Cows go. Cows go who? No, silly, cows go moo. Knock, knock. Who's there? Woo. Woo who? Hey, don't get so excited. It's just a joke. And knock, knock. Who's there? Deja. Deja who? Knock, knock. Right. Anyway, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells a little parable about somebody knocking on someone else's door. And as with any parable, we need to decide what each of the elements of the story might represent. So read Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 8, with the following questions in mind. Who do you think the man sleeping represents? Who does the man knocking on the door represent? What does the knocking itself represent? And what point do you feel that Jesus is trying to make by telling this little parable? Okay, now, the, the man sleeping in the story would be God, right? Or maybe not. But let's go ahead and look at it that way for now. We'll come back to a different idea later. But let's assume that the sleeping man represents God. The man knocking on the door would be who then? That would be us, right? We always want to seek to find ourselves in Jesus' parables. What's the knocking then? I believe that would be prayer seeking for God's help in times of need. And I like the fact that what the man is asking for here is not a need for himself, really, but for a friend. He wants bread to provide for his friends so that, so that he can be a good host. So this is a righteous desire. Our most important question then, what point do you feel Jesus is making by telling this parable? Well, why did the man get up and give bread to his friend? It says, because of the man's importunity. Importunity means boldness and persistence. Sleeping man realizes that his neighbor is not going to just go away. That he's just going to keep knocking until he gives him an answer. So he gets up to help him so that he can go back to bed. What's a possible application of this parable then? When it comes to our own prayers and requests for help, we must be persistent in our efforts. We can't expect God to come and answer or grant all of our requests the very moment that we desire them. He's not a cosmic vending machine. So if you don't feel like God has given you an answer to a faithful, sincere prayer yet, then bruise your knuckles on heaven's door until he comes. And I believe that he will. He will rise and answer. Although we may need to grant him some time to wake up, get out of bed, and come to the door. Now, a good discussion to have with your students would be to ask, why do you think he does that? Why does he delay or why does he require persistence? Is it because he's unwilling to help us? Is it that God's got to be coerced or 
pestered into blessing or helping us? I don't think that's it at all. Although the parable does tell us that that's the reason the man gets up and helps. It says that the reason he comes to the door is not because he's his friend, but because that pesky neighbor of his is, is so darn persistent. He's just sitting there in bed thinking, ah, oh, you got to be kidding me. It's midnight for heaven's sakes. Might as well get up now and give him what he wants or I'm not ever going to get back to sleep. But there's another possible way of looking at this. The parable may not necessarily be comparing the sleeping man to God in kind, but in contrast. I don't believe that we're required to batter at an unwilling God's door over and over to finally convince or bother him enough to help us. On the other hand, I do believe that persistence and sincerity and intensity in prayer are important things. So the key to understanding this can be found in verses 11 through 13. These are verses that we've already talked about where Jesus asks that if a son asks his father for bread, would he give him a stone? And then in verse 13, he says, If ye then, being evil or human, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? I think we can apply the same pattern or idea with the parable of the friend at midnight. It's as if Jesus is saying, if a perturbed, ordinary, petty man is willing to get up and help a friend just to get him to go away, then how much more shall your heavenly Father, who truly cares about you and loves you, will provide you with what you need when you knock for it? If the evil or human man will do it, then surely wouldn't God? And it leads us back to our original question. Why the delay? Perhaps it's because he knows we'll value something far more when we've worked for it. Effort creates dearness. Now that may not be a requirement for every prayer. Like Jesus says in verse 9, sometimes he's going to give us ask and ye shall receive kind of prayer experiences. But at other times, he's going to give us seek and ye shall find experiences. And that's seeking or knocking, maybe weeks, months, or even years in the making. We may have to knock for some time before the answer comes. But I do believe it will come. And, and a caution here, though, the principle is not be persistent in your prayers until you get the answer that you want. It's be persistent in your prayers until you get an answer. But if the answer isn't the one you wanted, be willing and ready to accept it. It's the, the bread and stones, fish and serpents principle that we talked about. We don't want to run into a Balaam or Joseph Smith in the 116 pages type scenario. We don't want to keep bothering God when he's already answered us. If he's given you bread, take the kind of bread he's offering you. The answer may be no. The answer may be you're asking for the wrong thing. The answer may be, I have something better for you here, although it's not exactly what you're asking for. Can you imagine how the sleeping man would feel if he got up and gave multi-grain bread to his friend and the guy started complaining by saying, Ah, oh, come on, don't, don't you have some white bread that I can have? I don't want this. I'd be tempted to slam the door in his face. 
So the truth, if we persistently pray and seek Heavenly Father's blessings in times of need, then He will answer our prayers in the ways and at the times that will bless us most. To liken the scriptures, have you ever had a time when you feel that God allowed you to learn by letting you pray with persistence? And allow me to share a brief personal experience that, that I've had with this principle myself. I remember praying to know if the Book of Mormon was true after reading it when I was eight years old and not feeling like I received an answer. I read the Book of Mormon again at age 12 and prayed that same prayer. Again, nothing. I remember praying again during my seminary years with great faith and desire and, and once again not feeling like I was receiving any kind of specific confirmation of its truth. And as my years of missionary service approached, I desired more and more to have a strong conviction of its truthfulness and power. Well, a part of this, I believe, may be stemmed from an immature understanding of the nature of testimony. I did have a testimony of the Book of Mormon at that point. And not all testimonies need to come with some kind of powerful spiritual manifestation to confirm the truth. But the Lord did do this for me. Every night as my mission approached, I prayed for some kind of message or feeling or indication from heaven to strengthen my conviction and testimony. And on a night that I wasn't even expecting an answer, it came. And it was very powerful. I had an incredibly meaningful answer to my prayer. The Lord came to the door and gave me all the bread that I needed. Not sure why the Lord waited until then to send me the answer that he did, but I trust that it was the right time in his omniscience and his eternal perspective. I am certain about one thing, though, that if I had received that same answer at age 8 or 12 or 16, I don't believe that it would have had the same impact or value that it did have and that it has to me now. So please keep in mind in all your prayers and your petitions that persistence in prayer has power. And there you have it. Uh, four little gems from the teachings of Jesus Christ this week. I hope, I hope you enjoyed that. And if you did, uh, I'd invite you to share it with somebody else that you feel that it could help. Teachers, if you would like access to the resources that I create for, for teachers, uh, go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to each of those resources. Uh, thank you so much for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.